You're listening to the Radiology News Network, RNN. Welcome to a new episode of the Radiology News Network. We adopted a new style, as you can hear, with specially composed music. This is performed by Patrick Brouwer, one of our interventional radiologists in the field of neuroradiology. So, thank him for that. It makes it more vivid. Today we have uh, a special guest, and uh, I will introduce him later. Uh, so, I hope you will enjoy this podcast and also the new music. Radiology News Network, RNN. So welcome, uh, uh, Professor Patel. Uh, I hope you're uh, you're live now in the broadcast. Welcome, thank you. So uh, maybe the first step is to introduce yourself, uh, your center, where you're working, and maybe also a little bit about your background, where you did your uh, study of medicine. Absolutely. Uh, I'd be delighted. Um, uh, my name is Maitre Patel. Uh, I'm currently a professor of radiology at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Uh, I actually trained uh, by going to medical school and college here in the U.S. Uh, at the University of Michigan. Uh, and after um, Michigan, I went to do my internship and residency at uh, UCSF. Uh, so I was at UCSF as a radiology resident. Um, Subsequently, did my fellowship also at UCSF in both ultrasound and in body MRI. Um, and then subsequently stayed on at UCSF as a faculty member, primarily at the San Francisco General Hospital, where I was the chief of ultrasound uh, for almost five years. Uh, then subsequently in 1998, uh, my wife and I left San Francisco to come to Arizona to join the Mayo Clinic uh, here in Arizona. And I've been here for 22 years. Uh-huh. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. I'm also already for 25 years in Leiden. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a long time. It's a long time. Well, you, you published uh, uh, very interesting papers, of course, a lot of them. But uh, in this podcast, I would like to focus on two of them. Uh, and the first one is the most intriguing one that was published recently in Radiology uh, 2020 edition. And the formal title is Radiologists Make More Errors Interpreting Off-Hours Body CT Studies During Overnight Assessments as Compared with Daytime Assignments. Well, that's a very intriguing <laughs> title. Uh, I also had to do some of that work during night shifts when I was a resident. So I know the feeling that uh, at three o'clock at night, maybe you're not that sharp as three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but you try to quantify this effect. So can you tell me a little bit about the study setup, the design? Absolutely. So um, uh, this was really a, a unique opportunity at our facility because um, we had, although we are an academic center and a subspecialized department, meaning that we have a dedicated ultrasound uh, division, a dedicated uh, cardiothoracic division, et cetera, um, we did not have a radiology residency. So when I first came to Mayo in Arizona, um, we're, we've been growing. Um, the, the whole 
clinic here, everyone's familiar with the Mayo Clinic and its headquarters are in Rochester, Minnesota. But in uh, the early 1980s, um, the Rochester um, headquarters decided that it would facilitate patient care for their model to have two ancillary sites. And so they created one site in Jacksonville, Florida, and one site in Arizona. And so when the site started in Arizona in 1987, um, the you know, there were only two radiologists then. Uh, but over time, as the clinic grew and the, the, the goal was always to grow, uh, it became bigger. And so when I joined in 1998, uh, I would think I was the 17th radiologist. Uh, and now we have over 50 radiologists. So uh, it's been a continuous growth. But uh, the, the upshot of that uh, is that we uh, did not have a radiology residency for many years. Uh, and But we did have subspecialty expertise. And so here in the United States, uh, we have uh, a, you know this fellowship model where residents, after doing a residency here in the United States, can do extra training with subspecialized radiologists in a particular area. And since we had subspecialty divisions, um, we had fellowships. And so uh, we were able to recruit over the years uh, people who would come typically only for one year to do subspecialty training. Uh, and the three areas that we focused on because of the popularity and because of our particular expertise uh, were breast imaging, musculoskeletal imaging, and uh, body MRI. So we would have fellows come every year in those three areas. Well, as part of their responsibilities, uh, these fellows would take night call for us. Uh, when they were doing that, so these are people, individuals who had completed a, a radiology residency. They were board certified or board eligible. Uh, they had all passed uh, their residency. And now we're doing an extra year of training. And when we had them do the night shifts, um, there were varying uh, styles, but essentially um, the night shifts were from 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. Um, there were I should, I should go back there. They don't not only did night shifts, but they did after hours shifts as well. We call them collectively after hours shifts. So part of those after hours shifts would be 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. because we would have subspecialty primary faculty members interpreting up till 8 p.m. Um, and then the other after hours shift would be on the weekends or on holidays. And so on that shift would be 7 a.m. Uh, to 6 p.m. Uh, and so the um, and then on the weekends, obviously it was six p.m. to seven a.m. So uh, there was a little bit extra hours on the weekends for the night person. Um, anyway, uh, the upshot of this is that we, uh, as opposed to most academic centers in the United States, since we didn't have residents, we had fellows who were already finished residency doing these general radiology shifts. By general, meaning they were charged with interpreting all the examinations that came through, not just in their area that they were training. Um, and because we're an academic center, we would always reread them uh, the next day or within, uh, our rule was it had to be reread within 10 hours. So for example, on a Saturday, if a fellow had interpreted a rheumatic topic pregnancy case at 10 in the morning uh, and dictated it, I, as the ultrasound attending, would review that before you know the, the afternoon. Uh, and typically uh, the faculty at home would would log onto the computer and review every few hours. And so during the daytime, it was, you know, perhaps two to three hour delay in terms of the review. In the evenings, obviously up until about 11 p.m., the faculty would review and then they would put it away and then look again in the morning at six or seven in the morning. So um, there was a little longer delay between the interpretation and the review. But 
because you know obviously we're a center where people make decisions based on radiology, those reports that the fellows were dictating were not preliminary reports. They were complete final reports. Uh, they would go out into the packs. And then when we reviewed them, if we thought there was a discrepancy, we would change the report. Um, we also had a, a computer-based, um, we wanted to understand, you know, primarily to make sure that we were being true to our colleagues in other disciplines, we kept track of how many times we said that the fellows had made mistakes, uh, how many times we said that the, the, the diagnosis changed or that whatever we added to the report would impact the patient's care, either acutely or a follow-up care, meaning if the resident had, uh, not resident, if the fellow had said, hey, there's a hemorrhagic ovarian cyst in the left ovary uh, and you should get a follow-up, uh, study in six weeks. And when we looked at it, we said, well, this hemorrhagic ovarian cyst is only three centimeters. And so, no, the patient does not need a follow-up study in three in six weeks. This can go away by itself and without any further imaging. We would change the report and the recommendation, and we would mark that off as a change in the care because the f fellow had recommended a care that we didn't think was needed. And there were other instances where they may not have seen things and we had identified things. So there are all types of potential errors. In addition to those types of errors, there were also style changes. Uh, these were where we might have added something to the differential diagnosis, or we may have changed the actual wording of the report. And those were also kept track of, but those were not part of the study at all. So we did not look at those sorts of changes. We only looked at changes where the radiology attending said that there was a change to the uh, care. And then we would, as a each division would review those changes at a quality assurance meeting every quarter for each division just to see what we could learn. But we kept track of these. Yeah, you, and so, you classified all this as an error? As, but yeah, but we, did you also specify or have different layers of, of errors or different levels? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we... We did not formally um, do that. So if some, if one person had an error that was that affected care, uh, for example, my hemorrhagic ovarian cyst example, that that technically is an error. Somebody had recommended a follow-up study, uh, and the attending said, "You know what? Follow-up study is not needed." So that changes the care of that patient in the future. Having said that, one could argue. Uh, that that has a relatively minor impact on the patient because the harm is one extra test. You know, what is the harm of an extra test? Well, there is some harm, but it's not a huge harm as opposed to, let's say, somebody missed um, a pulmonary ma mass, uh, you know, in the lung base on a body CT. So let's say they looked at a, you know, an abdomen pelvis CT and there is a lung mass in the lower uh, right lung and they did not see that. And then obviously if the attending saw that and said, hey, uh, there is a lung mass. So yes, there's no cause of diverticulitis, but this patient needs to get a, you know, a workup of that lung mass. Clearly the impact of that error is higher. So yeah. there are different tiers of layers, but we did not, we did not actually um, take the effort to grade those. Yeah, and and, and we also did not record the number of errors. So if you had one error, it was put in the error bucket. But if you had 10 errors, it was also put in the error bucket. So we didn't, you know. Yeah. And, and you uh, analyzed the period between July 2014 and uh, 2018, I see. Right. And so we did it yeah. in that period because starting in July 2018, we had our residency set up 
uh, we had we were creating a residency, and now we have trainees that are residents doing these shifts, not fellows, not people who had finished. And so that was a natural break for our analytical period. So to get back to the study design, so we had all this data and then we thought, well, let's take a look and see how well individuals did when they were working during the day compared to how well the individuals, same individuals did when they were working overnight to see if there was a difference. Yeah. Uh, and in total, you had uh, more than 10,000 body CT studies <laughs> interpreted right. by so 32 different radiologists. So can you comment a little bit on the results? What what was the outcome of the, the whole effort? Sure. Uh, so um, when we analyzed the data, what we found was that uh, the rate of error overall uh, was relatively low, 2.4%, 2.5%, something like that. But that if you took a look at the time periods, uh, and you classify them just in a binary fashion, day versus night, uh, what we found is that the the error rate for the 10,000 exams total uh, was much lower in the daytime than in the nighttime. And by much lower, I mean 1%, which doesn't sound like a lot. Uh, but you have to remember that many of these studies were not abnormal. So... Um, what we didn't test and what, you know, obviously your the degree of the percentage of what you're going to find is going to depend on the severity of the cases that you're seeing. The more complicated the cases, the more errors that you would have. So there's going to be a number of cases that are easy. So, a, you know, rule out appendicitis in the middle of the night will be relatively easy as rule out appendicitis might be during the day. Or, you know, look for renal stones uh, in the middle of the night would be relatively easy. Um so we had a 1% difference in the error rate, uh, meaning that when these individuals were reading from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. during the day uh, on holidays and on weekends, they made errors at a collective rate of 2%. So one out of 50 studies were marked as having an error. Whereas uh, at night, if they read, if for the collective cases that were done overnight, which was from uh, 7 p.m. to 6, I'm sorry, from 8 p.m. generally to, or, or 6 p.m., depending on the whether it was uh, the uh, weekend or the weekday to 7 in the morning, uh, their collective error rate was 3%. And then we substratified that more and found that the biggest error rate was actually between midnight and 7 in the morning. So any study that got interpreted between midnight and 7 in the morning was um, had a 3.7% chance of having an error versus uh, the cases that were read from 7 in the morning to uh, 12 noon, which is the, f- you know, the fresh, uh, the person's fresh, uh, that error rate was less than 2%. Of course, we all would like to have a 0% error rate, but if you are realistic, what percentage can be used as a real cutoff to say, well, this is really not acceptable? Well, so again, that really depends on how many normals you're doing. If you're at a center, uh, like our center has some fairly complicated cases. Uh, And so, uh, you know, we have a cancer center and a number of patients come in and there are some strange uh, things. And then on top of that, there are many findings. And so, uh, as you know, we were asking our fellows to dictate, these radiologists to dictate complete studies. And so they were responsible and they were held accountable for um, you know, everything on the images. And so as a result, um, 
you know, the more complicated the case is, the higher rate of misses, I think. And I think we've we've shown that in the past. We've done some other work where, um, you know, if you have normal cases, your error rate should be zero. If everybody's normal, it should be zero percent. But if everybody is sick, very sick, your error rate might be, you know, higher. So there's not a good number. Yeah. It would vary from center to center. And and if you see all these numbers, what what should be the consequence of these findings? Because yeah, you have to report sometimes in the weekend and at night. Right. But is, right. what is what are the practical impl implementations of this uh, result? Yeah, that's a very good question. So w what we wanted to um, we just wanted to present the data so that people understood. And then actually, you know, sometimes when you present this data, um, like I've gotten some feedback saying, well, that's obvious. I mean, if you're in the middle, if you're going to wake up in the middle of the night, you're not going to be as good. You're going to miss a few things when you're tired, as compared to when you're not tired. Uh, and I guess that is sort of the point. I mean, in our study design, we actually had it so that um, the fellows who were reading overnight were theoretically rested, meaning they could only do that five out of seven nights. They had to have 12 hours off before they started work. So they could not work during the day, uh, and um, uh, and they could, you know, theoretically they should be rested. Now, it's very hard, I think, for individuals to switch their circadian rhythms so that you know they do that. And everybody has a life, and so we don't know who had a child that they had to, you know, they couldn't sleep during the day because they have a child at home or or whatnot. So uh, there are obviously individual circumstances who will affect how rested you can be for a night shift. Um, having said all that, uh, part of it is sort of a, you know what, this is obvious. But the real implication, I think, is the notion that for people who generally work during the day, uh, when they work at night, perhaps that work should have more scrutiny. The practical implication for our, so I'll, I'll tell you the challenge at our center is that the emergency room physicians uh, do not like us reviewing the cases later because um, they don't, I mean, they want the best care, obviously, for the patient. Uh, but at the same time, it puts them in a weird situation because they may have acted on one interpretation and then we're telling them, you know, five to eight hours later, no, we think there's a different interpretation. And so then we have to contact the patients, have them come back. The emergency room physician may feel like they have to put something in the note, and oftentimes they do. Um, so, you know, there's a medical legal aspect to this that is perplexing. So we've actually had emergency room physicians, and our emergency room department says to us, well, we would prefer that you not review the studies at uh, overnight. Uh, just uh, have somebody who's, you know, reasonably well-trained read them out in the middle of the night and don't have them reviewed. Now, that's usually, you know, in an academic center, usually because you have a resident reading in the middle of the night, you certainly could take the approach that, okay, we'll have a faculty member meet, person read in the middle of the night. And our point was that our actual fellows were board certified fellows. They had completed a residency. And if we hired people to work just at night, most likely it's going to be these junior types of people who aren't subspecialized yet uh, and who are working, you know, at different times than they're used to working. And so uh, we think it's actually in the patient's best interest to get that second interpretation uh, 
in the morning with a fresh pair of eyes so that we can you know pick up any errors but that is the that's the real uh, question is what you know do we need do we have a subset of patients who should be looked at again um, and, and that's a tough question because obviously there's more effort we're not getting paid more to look at it again um, so there's a resource issue uh, and then you can make the same argument. Well, why, you know, why would we accept a 2% rate during the day? Those should be looked at again. And so <laughs> I do think that, um, you know, to some extent, AI may be um, a way out or, or, or pathway to quality improvement in this method. I mean, it may be that, uh, for example, radiologists who read in the middle of the night, or well, once AI is really good, let's say, uh, those cases would go through the AI computer and uh, and then, anything that looks like it might have been missed could be looked at by a second reviewer, but anything that looks like it hasn't been missed, you know, might not, you could, you could flip it as well, I suppose. But I mean, um, that's one option. Yeah. And this is of course true for the, uh, emergency care. Uh, but can you also extrapolate this knowledge to more elective or planned care? Is, is it, do you think it's the same? Well, I mean, uh, there's always going to be errors. So uh, there's two aspects of this. There's an inherent error rate, and then there's the error that's due to working um, outside of your normal hours. So theoretically, elective cases would not have that second component. Um, so, um, you know, yes, there's always going to be errors. Uh, the question, though, is uh, that we were looking at in our study was what additional errors can we attribute to the fact that we're working overnight. And in our case, it looked like 1%, which is actually 2 to 3%, it's a 50% higher error rate, you know, so. Yeah, it's, it's still uh, very intriguing, all these uh, results. So thank you very much for this uh, contribution to the literature. You're listening to the Radiology News Network, RNN. And that leads us to the second papers, because you have been very, very active, uh, Professor Patel. Uh, this paper is also published in 2020. I see that it was uh, submitted in uh, 2019, but it's now published in the, the Journal of American College of Radiology. And it's also a very practical paper. So that's what I also like about your work. If you read the papers, then you know what to do when you are back in your own hospital. Uh, and this uh, paper is about the management of incidental adnexal findings on CT and MRI. And it's even a white paper of the ACR Incidental Findings Committee. Uh, so can you also give a summary of this uh, interesting paper? Sure. Uh, just uh, by way of background, I um, have been very active in the Society of Radiologists and Ultrasound, uh, which is, you know, my what I do all the time is ultrasound. Um but uh, as part of that, uh, back in 2008, uh, we, uh, the SRU, had a consensus conference uh, to get together various um, uh, stakeholders, uh, GYN, pathology, others, to look at incidental adnexal cysts seen on ultrasound. And so I was, um, I was a major part of that group. And we came up with some recommendations. As a consequence of that work, I was approached to say, um, hey, we need some sort of management framework for what we do when we find these things on CT and on MR. Uh, and so would you, for the ACR, which I'm also a member of, uh, lead that um, 
committee. So in 2013 was when our first paper came out about how we might frame that management discussion. And then this recent 2020 revision is really an update of that. And so um, it was, uh, again, a collaborative effort. Uh, in this case, we had one gynecologist uh, on the um, on the uh, in the committee uh, and we had a few we had dr uh, um, some some people from the acr who were more uh, policy sorts of experts uh, and then there were a whole host of uh, really gyn imaging experts and also some not gyn imaging experts but ct experts so for example dr perry picard was on the committee He's not really a GYN radiologist, as everyone knows. His claim to fame is in the GI area, and he uh, does a lot of CT colonography screening. But as part of that CT colonography screening experience, he has a lot of familiarity with incidental adnexal findings on CT. Uh, and so um, we got together, and uh, our job was really to evaluate the literature to see what had changed, if anything, what new evidence could be brought to bear on this question, and then to create recommendations. And that's what we did. Can you give, give a summary of the NICE figure one? Uh, because that gives a flow chart of what to do. Sure. And also yeah. comment a little bit on the, on the reasons why you choose for that. For example, how to measure it. Uh, what do you mean uh, with one bigger than one centimeter? Is that right. the biggest, smallest? Right. Is it round or, or the shortest, longest, or all these practical problems right. that we always have? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, we wanted to make it simple. And so instead of using volume or average measurements and so forth, uh, uh, this is basically the largest measurement uh, uh, that you find for the round or oval cyst. So this, uh, first of all, the... the um, uh, at a high level, when you see something on CT, uh, it really falls into one of three buckets. Uh, it can be a characteristic abnormality. So it might characteristically be a, a dermoid, a benign cystic teratoma. It might characteristically be a hydrosalpinx. It might characteristically be a cancer. If you have a characteristic set of features, uh, then you're going to manage it based on what that diagnosis is. And so one arm of that algorithm is when you're looking at something, if you can make a diagnosis with reasonable confidence, then manage it the way that's managed. Um, and our work really did not address, uh, to some extent, we didn't really change what, how that's managed. And so um, that's one arm. The second arm is uh, it looks like a simple appearing cyst, uh, meaning... Um, and we had to define what simple appearing cyst meant. And so in our um, definition, a simpler appearing cyst was basically it was, um, you know, round or oval in shape, uh, had uh, Hounsfield units of less than 20. Uh, it uh, had a thin or imperceptible wall, obviously no solid components, uh, and, um, you know, fluid attenuation, essentially. Uh, and so if it was a simple appearing cyst, uh, and then less than 10 centimeters, uh, then we have a management algorithm for that. And then just set from back to the high level, the third arm is if you don't know what it is and you can't say with confidence that it's a simple appearing cyst, then you're going to probably need to evaluate it. And so that was the third arm. You're going to need some more imaging. Um, so 
focusing on the simple appearance cyst, because that's where I think the thought process was that uh, many people in the absence of having any guidelines were asking for uh, additional imaging studies, ultrasound generally, on patients who had what might be expected to be a normal finding in every pa- premenopausal patient, certainly every month, you know, a, a dominant follicle. And so uh, people were, you know, probably overusing imaging or um, even if they felt like they, you know, there's nothing wrong here, uh, they didn't have any framework or any guidelines to suggest, that, hey, I'm in good company. If I don't ask for a follow-up here, I'm not going to be held accountable for that sort of decision because it met these criteria. So we wanted to give people that sort of reassurance. Um, but also the literature now shows that uh, simple appearances on CT, uh, the ones that meet those criteria that I talked about, pretty much behave like simple cysts on ultrasound. So there's a difference. Simple cyst on ultrasound is also round or oval, has no internal echoes, has no solid component. But this is a sonographic characterization. On CT and on MR, we use simple appearing, uh, just to distinguish between those two. And uh, we have years of experience about simple cysts on ultrasound. We have less experience on really characterizing what happens to simple appearing cysts on CT, but now there is some evidence to suggest that if it looks simple appearing, it acts like a simple cyst on ultrasound. And because of that, uh, we're recommending that um, much in line with the SRU consensus statement, uh, if you're premenopausal or if you don't know the menopausal status, you're less than 50 years old uh, because the average age of menopause, although it varies in different countries in the United States, it's over 50. It's like 51. Um, so if you're premenopausal or less than 50 and you have a simple appearing cyst that's less than five centimeters or five centimeters or less, you can assume that this is, assuming it's an incidental finding, uh, that this is uh, going to be something that is not going to mean, ne- meaningfully impact the patient's care. It's either a non-neoplastic cyst, most likely a, a physiologic cyst. Could it be a benign neoplasm? Absolutely. It could be a cystadenoma. But as an incidental asymptomatic finding, one wonders whether you even need to do anything about cystadenomas. Uh, if they're not causing the patient any symptoms, they have no risk of going on to malignancy because now we know that uh, the vast majority of ovarian cancers arise from stick lesions, you know, from the fallopian tube, not from the ovary itself, from the cells that overlie the ovary uh, that are actually fallopian tube in origin. So, um, so if you're premenopausal and it's five centimeters or less, you can ignore it. Uh, if it's um, over five centimeters, uh, then you will probably get a follow-up. But one of the things that we did in this uh, instance is that if you had, uh, you know, if it, if you had an MRI, not a CT, but if now if you actually have an MRI with contrast uh, and you've evaluated this thing in many planes and it's a simple appearing cyst, you really didn't need to do anything until it was seven centimeters in size because we've done a very good evaluation. Uh, and one could argue that ultrasound is not going to be of much benefit after a well-characterized MRI. So five and seven are the numbers for a simple appearing cyst in a premenopausal. And three and five are the numbers for postmenopausal. So if it's on CT, simple appearing, less than three centimeters in size, 60-year-old woman, asymptomatic, incidental, you don't need to get further imaging. It can be up to five centimeters in that same woman if you happen to have looked at it with an MRI uh, and, uh, and have the same conclusion.
So that was the, that was the main issue. And then beyond that, our recommendations were that if you're going to get a follow-up ultrasound, since we already feel like this is a benign mass, it's simple appearing, but it's over your size threshold, get your follow-up in 6 to 12 months. That gives you the best chance to understand whether it goes away by itself, which some of these will, or gets smaller, which means that it's non-neoplastic, uh, or if it's getting larger. Um, and then finally, our recommendation was you really need to only follow these for two years. If after two years it hasn't changed appreciably in size, uh, and the, the follow-up is with ultrasound, of course, but so if after two years it hasn't changed, True, it could be a cystadenoma. It still could be a benign neoplasm. But as an asymptomatic finding that is very slow growing or not growing, it's unlikely to have any clinical impact for the patient. On the other hand, if it is growing, you still don't need to continue following it because you can conclude this is a benign neoplasm. It went from five centimeters to six centimeters to seven centimeters. And so I know it's enlarging. Uh, and so now, imaging follow-up is not really what you need. What you need is to decide whether you need to take it out or not. Uh, but if you don't want to take it out because the patient's asymptomatic, then the, the GYN or the family practice doctor, whoever is following this patient, can make a decision. Okay, I'm not going to get a follow-up in a year because she's still asymptomatic, but you know, I'll get a follow-up in two, three years uh, just to see where it's going. Or this 90-year-old patient, I won't get a follow-up at all. This isn't, you know, she has heart disease. She has so many other things. There's no reason to get a follow-up. And so the radiologist is not driving extra care by saying you need to continue to follow this. To what end? Yeah, and, and do you recommend a sort of BI-RADS system for this, like in mammography, sort of uh, at rats or whatever yeah, you call it? Yeah, <laughs> so there is an O-RADS now, as you know. Uh, and uh, this very much would qualify as an ORADS-2 lesion. Now, uh, we did not work in conjunction with the ORADS committee. Um, and I think in the ORADS, uh, they actually have recommendations for follow-up up to five years, which is reasonable. Uh, in our estimation, what we felt is for an asymptomatic mass that's incidental, uh, after two years, you should either be able to make one of three conclusions uh, – Number one, it's growing. Okay, fine. So now manage it as a growing mass. Uh, number two, it's gone away or it's reducing in size, in which case nothing needs to be done. Uh, or number three, it hasn't changed in size. So it could still be very slow growing uh, or it could be something that never grows. And again, you would manage that based on symptoms in our estimation. So we didn't think there was much need for a five-year follow-up in patients as a routine recommendation uh, for something that has a, a benign uh, appearance. Now, remember, the follow-up is with ultrasound. And so once you have a simple appearing cyst on CT, let's say it's five and a half centimeters premenopausal, you're going to get a follow-up. Uh, you ask for the follow-up in six to 12 months. She comes back in a year, and now it's a five and a half centimeter cyst on ultrasound. Uh, then you'll manage it really based on the ultrasound features. Now the CT is no longer really why you're managing it. And if we, we take an outlook to the future, uh, are there any techniques that you think are promising to better characterize the lesions? Uh, for example, well, let's say uh, mapping techniques in MRI or new ultrasound methods? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think because I think for certainly for things that are indeterminate, uh, for things that have uh, 
findings where you're not sure whether this is a meaningful finding or not, there's going to be a lot of new things that will help. Uh, those things could include elastography, they could include contrast and ultrasound, they could include, um, you know, other sorts of new sequences that haven't even been defined yet by MR to understand whether this is neoplastic tissue or not. Um, but when you're talking about a simple appearing cyst, I'm not sure that there's going to be any more um, imaging characterization that's needed uh, because now our experience is that for simple cysts, certainly, and for simple appearing cysts based on you know more recent evidence, uh, these things are benign and do not actually progress to malignancy. Okay, Professor Patel, uh, thank you very much for your contribution in this uh, podcast. So it was a real joy to have you uh, in the show. And I recommend everybody to read those two papers. So uh, I will give the links uh, to it below. So uh, thanks again. And uh, I hope to, to see you live at some time. Yeah, that would be a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And in the new style of the uh, Radiology News Network podcast, I'd like to end with a new feature called Innovation Leads to Leadership. That are short bursts of information, so you have to listen very carefully. And uh, the first one is about discovery of CT. RNN. Innovation leads to leadership. At EMI, there's royal recognition and a meeting with its inventor, Godfrey Hounsfield. The first body picture I took was of myself. And um, I was very amazed to see what I looked like inside. The world's first CT patient was scanned in London in 1971. But it became clinically available in 1973 and the body machine became available in 1975 so 80 years after Röntgen's discovery RNN